1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 27, 2018, the 100% Certain Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., John Dickerson of CBS This Morning is getting on a train. So he is also in Washington, D.C., but will probably be in Baltimore by the time we're done. And Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine is also either on or off a train. And I don't know what state she's off (laughs) a train. John's on a train. I was on a train last night. It's it's train.
3: We are well trained
2: on this week's GabFest we're going to give the whole show over to the astonishing hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee all day. Uh, that's going to be all we're going to talk about. It was a historic and strange and grueling day for all of us, and we will also do cocktail chatter, and then we'll have a slate plus where we'll talk a little bit about John's trip to England and his interview with the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Before we get started, I just want to quickly announce from from the uh, you know the the somber to the the extremely frivolous we will be doing our conundrum show on december 12th at the skirball center at nyu you can get tickets at com slash live that is always the funnest live show we do in the year it will be a very joyful distracting and interesting event we will uh, discuss whether it is insulting to get someone the gift of a cleaning service or whether you'd rather work for a great boss who's a terrible person or a terrible boss who is a great person and it'll be really fun so go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to our december 12th conundrum show in new york city so uh emily let's start with you i think everyone who is listening to the show and all of us spent the day glued to the television i should note that i stopped watching uh before uh, just during ted cruz's questioning. So it was almost at the very end. I don't, so I didn't see the very end of what happened. So if something happened in the last five minutes, uh, I missed it. And I don't know if you guys did too. Uh, what did you make just, first of all, what did you make of, of the day?
0: Well, it was so hard, (laughs) so weird. Um, and so, so many different emotions. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but this morning I felt all this, um, Empathy and also pride in Dr. Blasey Ford, whose testimony was totally credible and she just carried herself so well. I thought her care and precision was remarkable and reflected her professionalism. And I kept thinking about how her whole professional identity has been kind of swallowed up by this assault that she says she suffered as a teenager. But it was amazing to listen to her both bear witness and then also analyze as a psychologist um, the kinds of trauma she was feeling. And, um, you know, she had me at the word hippocampus. So that was the morning and it seemed complete. And then Brett Kavanaugh got on the stand and very ardently, passionately, really ferociously denied these allegations, launched a partisan attack on Democrats. And left me with a feeling I've had in the past, and I've interviewed women who've made rapey accusations and then interviewed the men they've accused, which is that people can look you in the eye and with great sincerity and intensity um, tell you that something did or did not happen, and you can be left with these contradictory accounts. And it's very uncomfortable to not believe someone who is passionately asking you to believe them. Um, So I think that part of it was hard to deal with emotionally, uh, for me, there are reasons to doubt Kavanaugh um, at this point, um, anyway. But I just want to give that initial emotional impression.
2: John, what's what do you come away with from the hearing? With
3: I, I had the same feeling. I thought that uh, Dr. Ford was, um, you know, for me it was it was uh, well. I thought her, she was uh, extraordinary, not going beyond what she knew, uh, being so careful as to even make sure she didn't use an adjective incorrectly. And as Emily pointed out and I'm just being redundant here, but I think it is impressive when you have an expert in the thing that is, it was like a meta. She was both testifying and being an expert witness on the nature of her own testimony. Um, you Usually don't get, usually don't get, get that. Um, and I thought it raised the burden. And the question was, you know, had she been, was it all about her credibility? And was she sufficiently credible that it would be a, a, a roadblock to confirmation To elevation to to a job uh, um, uh, elevation for Kavanaugh for the two, three, four, five Republicans who are who are up for grabs here. Then he came out and gave um, that very impassioned opening statement. I thought she her opening statement was incredibly passionate and powerful. And then she basically maintained that same level. Um, I thought he was his opening statement was uh, very emotional. Was a sustained blast of anguish. And then I think in the back and forth, it got a little, uh, he ran into some difficulties. Um, and what I'm left to try to figure out is a lot of people said, uh, who, are, who are not fans of his, they said, you know, this is the way a person who, is, who feels guilty about being caught would behave. But, but how then would that be different from a person who is, how a person would behave if they thought they were totally being wrongfully accused? How do you separate, what mechanism do you use to to separate the behavior of the two? I'm left with what, with what Emily described, which is seeing two people say that they are 100% certain of something, and I lack the capacity and the fact pattern here. Um, there are some nits to pick in her story and some nits to pick in his his rebuttals. I thought when he uh, asked Amy Klobuchar, who's the daughter, having told everyone she's the daughter of, a, of an alcoholic, whether she had blacked out, uh, I thought that was a, a weird piece of defensiveness from him and suggested a kind of brittleness, which, you know, after going through what he feels like he's gone through, maybe that's, we should give, uh, have a little grace and, and allow for that. On the other hand, uh, it, was, it was weird tonally. Um, so I'll stop talking now.
2: I did think, and Emily, let's let's go to some of these credibility questions around Kavanaugh. Uh, That's the most recent thing that I've spent time thinking about because the morning now seems to have been a month ago. So he was adamant about denying things, which seem pretty obvious. That he he uh, referred to this yearbook reference as being uh, as, as not at all being derogatory about this young woman who was clearly being derogated in it. He denied ever having possibly drunk in such a way that he might have been fuzzy or lost control he uh, you know su- he suggested that uh, words didn't mean what we know they meant he generally downplayed any potential for for understanding him as having been alcoholic or being somebody who could have misbehaved and all of that it seemed to me he was he was working very hard to try to in- ensure that he didn't concede any ground on this question of am I have I ever been fuzzy? Could there be something which I've forgotten? Uh and and he wasn't leaving a tiny shred of opening around that and that caused him to lie about things.
0: Right. And I think he is really, really gone for presenting himself as the victim here, right? I mean he couldn't present Blasey Ford as his attacker or the villain because that would have been, I think, politically not. And also, it wouldn't go with the image he's tried to present as being a great champion of women. And so instead, he launched this partisan attack against the Democrats. And I think that was like the smart political card to play. But all of the victimhood and the umbrage taking and indignation also meant that he couldn't really give any ground on... um, you know, the drinking on how he's treated women and all these references in his yearbooks and his own speeches. And then, you know, the the testimony or at least like interviews that have poured forth in the press from people who knew him, especially in college, but also in high school. There's no room for any of that in the picture he's painting of himself. And so it is very much at odds with another picture that people who knew him then have painted. And he is just going for that all out, right? I mean, there was another possible path. Um, And that was the more, you know, yeah, I drank a lot and I don't remember everything. Um, But I think he decided weeks ago that that was not the image he wanted to present himself and that he couldn't afford to do it. Or for whatever reason, he just hasn't gone that way. He has totally doubled down on absolute denial, which is a very Trumpian thing to do, right? Um, But it leaves him you have to go for all of it. And for me, it becomes really it's really straining my credulity, um, if that's the right way to put it, to imagine that. He's well,
2: he may. He, it is possible that he had an episode where he was quite drunk, didn't remember what happened or only has the haziest memory and therefore actually genuinely believes that that what she described didn't involve him. Um,
0: Possibly, but he has left no room for us to use that as an excuse for him. He's Correct. refused to admit that that could be a possibility. And so we're left with this picture of that he's presented of himself in which, you know, to me, his veracity is just like it's just at odds with all these other pieces of information we have.
3: The, the, he was very defensive and, and brittle about the question of drinking. And it just seems to be clear from all, both... His friends and also the yearbook page and and um his friend uh, judge that that he was obviously more of a drinker than he's letting on. The second thing is the political attack and then bringing up the Clintons. I think let let your Republican questioners do all that. you uh, I thought what you know when he talked about his daughter praying for Dr. Ford and he talked about the, what this had done to his reputation and his family, I thought that was the most emotionally powerful. Why get into all the partisan stuff? Let the, let the politicians do that. They're going to do it. Why do? You, why is that helpful to your brief?
0: Especially because then it costs doubt on how you're possibly going to be a fair and impartial judge when you get to the bench and you have liberal causes and uh, plaintiffs and Democrats in front of you.
2: Yes, but I think he was playing for his audience was two uh, sets of people. One was the president who... He did not want the president to yank his nomination or think he was weak, and and so he was very much playing to the president. And then I think he was playing to the men on that committee in a very canny way. I thought it was an incredibly effective performance for those two audiences. For the men, uh, he he and and for, for Trump, it was his indignation, his denial, his aggressiveness about it, his aggressiveness towards the questioning uh, was something which which we know Trump responds to in the Trump respects and admires and that that kind of uh concede no territory attitude is is very trumpian and he's trump is very sympathetic to it the, and in terms of the the um the senators themselves i think they also uh saw themselves in kavanaugh and saw the sense like oh my god i could be uh subject to this and look at he, he's standing up for his honor in the way that i would stand up for for my honor i think they were the the white male republican senators were very very strongly identifying with him and and that is exactly why they took back the questioning midway through it's like they suddenly recognize, i want to be associated with this guy i don't need to i don't need to protect myself anymore in the way i did in the morning where i don't want to be on record asking any questions about this i don't want to impugn dr blasey ford Like they suddenly they realize, like, you know what, this guy is going places. I want to be with him. I want to get on the side of it. And it was and the base is going to like it.
0: I totally agree. And then, of course, the play is that you force Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and I guess Jeff Blake, if he's still in play, you force their hand. You make them vote for you because the other 48 senators plus President Trump are still behind you. That's the play, and I was surprised, but I think that you're totally right about it.
2: John?
3: I think the play was most uh, uh, exactly articulated by Lindsey Graham. You know, part of this, when it's done, is who gets to define the argument? Who defines what the question is that's going to be decided before the vote? And if you can define that territory, you know, you frame the question, you win. And Lindsey Graham basically said, for any Republicans thinking about voting against him, will be a vote for character assassination. So it's trying to shift it from, do you believe Dr. Ford, to are you okay doing this to him? And for Kavanaugh, sorry, for Murkowski and Collins, the extra power of that there is, it doesn't matter for Corker and Flake, they're leaving. But base voters in their states are getting a cue from Graham and saying, this is the choice that the senator is making. And so it's increasing the pain threshold for them from... Uh, Republicans who see things the way Graham does.
0: Well, John, I think you're totally right about Lindsey Graham's reframing. And of course, what it leaves out of the picture were all the people and elements that were missing today. So Deborah M- M- Ramirez wasn't there, um, the second woman who accused him of sexual misconduct when she was at Yale and he was at Yale. And all the drinking is totally mixed into that. Julie Swetnick, the third accuser has come forward, also missing you know, the FBI investigation that did not happen that one would presumably want if this was really about finding the truth um, and about clearing your name. I mean, I think that was those were the questions that Kavanaugh just like danced around and was not convincing about today. And then there's the missing Mark Judge, the the friend who would presumably back up Kavanaugh, but is so toxic because of his own drinking, which is really flagrantly on the record that he, the Republicans can't let him into the room. It's only by leaving out all of those people and factors that we can narrow this down to this choice between character assassination, um, this choice about character assassination that Lindsey Graham wants it to be. Can I just say
3: one quick thing about Judge that has occurred to me, which is Kavanaugh made it sound like, well, he was a friend, but, you know, wasn't necessarily his best friend. But but, um, Dr. Ford put them in the same room. Like, she didn't just, I mean, she obviously didn't make up. One thing about her testimony that was so powerful, whatever happened, this is not somebody who came in at the 11th hour because she's a Democratic operative. No one can create a detailed narrative like that that's just making it up. Right. And so she put, Ford and Kavanaugh in the same room, like, why pick those two people? I mean, sh- sh- making that connection um, and connecting him to the guy who wrote the book about how drunk he was, uh, that, that, that is an incredible kind of piece of information that kind of wasn't wrestled with by his response about Judge and which make it all the more important to have had him there to speak for himself.
2: Right, and also the fact that that calendar, which which Kavanaugh was so uh, indignant about and insistent about, indicated there was a, on July first a party at which Judge and Kavanaugh and the other people that that Dr. Ford named were had were at a party at a different place. Yeah, um, and so there's 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 so much in her story that that. Speaks to truth, or 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 is or is kind of confirmed by other uh, vague ancillary evidence. I mean, you know, we'll obviously never know. But but judge the judge's absence was extraordinary, and the and the way I thought Democrats were very inefficient and ineffective at making a big deal about his absence. And you know, the Senate can force him to come testify. They they chose not to because the majority wouldn't want it. But it's it's pretty amazing that Judge has been allowed to skate on this ridiculous statement that he made.
0: about the morning, David, I wonder what you think about this. I mean, I think the weakest part of Blasey Ford's, um, not, not what she presented, but just like in trying to judge this, is that there isn't someone else who remembers being at that party. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. No reason that it would have been memorable for the other people there. It was 36 years ago. But we don't have the, you know, firsthand corroborating witness. And, you know, if there was like, that If you're going to try to, in a principled way, say, I don't think there's enough evidence here to um, vote against Kavanaugh, I think that's your most principled, um, like, helping hand. I,
2: I But do, I didn't, I assume you guys have done the same exercise that I've done, which is to think back, like, all right, what was I like at 15? Can right. I think of episodes <laughs> when I was 15? And you can think, you can call to mind the things that were most uh, amazing or difficult or shocking. But almost everything else is just a mass, like it's a vague sort of sense memory of something that happened there, something that happened there. But you, don't, you couldn't with any accuracy say, oh, it happened on this date or with these people. It's only there are a few very specific things that you could call to mind, which were particularly traumatic or particularly exciting. And so the chances that anybody else would remember that party, that event, like how anyone got there, what happened, if... Dr. Ford never said anything about it, is mi- nil. No one would remember that. So it's not at all surprising that nobody remembers that.
3: Right. I, I, That's exactly right. And, I and we know about the way the brain science works, which Emily brought up, you know, a week ago. But then we had a, a doctor on the show explaining that, you know, when you have a moment of trauma, it creates deep indelible, but not necessarily broad memories. And that regular old people in their memories, it just doesn't etch that way in the hippocampus.
2: Yeah, John, to that end, I thought the most astonishing moment in Dr. Ford's testimony was that description of the laughter, the uproarious laughter between the two. That is a kind of thing which would stick. It would just like remain in the memory. It was so strong because you could you can just you can just feel how she felt at that moment and the, and that these this particular detail would stay with you and would be so uh hard to shake and so sticky in your brain it was that that was the most powerful moment of the day for me it
0: also lined up with one of the things deborah murmura said which was that um when he like pulled his pants down exposed himself laughed at her which is of course completely at odds with the image he's tried to make paint of himself as being this you know sensitive advocate of women
2: there's only one of them who has a motive for lying really like if you unless you think that dr ford has a long has a long game where she's just been waiting to bring him down and this was her moment to play it which I think is preposterous only only he has a motive to lie about it she does not really she's not making any money it's not gonna it's ruined her life it's annihilated her life so, so yeah. that's one big issue and the, and the other uh thing that I thought was so telling about the afternoon is that actually the Republicans did not at all engage with dr blasey Ford's testimony they it was as though she hadn't even been there they didn't press him on anything that she mentioned they just allowed him the the the, the conversation in the uh, afternoon from a Republican's perspective was just Kavanaugh's honor, protecting his honor. He he was speaking up righteously for himself and he'd been character assassinated by a Democratic plot. There was no sort of substantive engagement with the actual allegations that she made and her incredibly persuasive testimony to that effect.
0: Yes, absolutely. That seems but that
3: seems to me and maybe because I'm totally wrong, but that seems obvious to me because if you engage with her testimony, as we've seen throughout the week leading up to this, engagement by a a, a male Republican senator is very easily characterized uh, as doubting whether this ever happens with women in general. What, 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 what standing up for his character allowed them to do is say she was compelling, I found her credible, but then shift the nature of the question to his character, his... Uh, uh, character assassination, um, his being dragged through this process, um, I think if they engage with, with uh, Dr. Ford too much, they risk running into, for lack of a better phrase, a Anita Hill problem.
0: Well, that's true, but of course, the character assassination is coming about because she made this accusation. And so you can't Right. I mean, politically speaking, what you said makes total sense, but logically speaking, it doesn't make any
3: sense. Yes, I'm and and I'm just dealing with the politics, not the uh, and (laughs) I know and not the and not the logic. No, I mean, and this is and I'll try and be square. And this is why the lack of a closing argument really hurts in these instances. Which is, it'd be nice for for the purposes of logic, someone to take everything we'd heard from both sides and tie it together with a unified field theory. So that this can be, you know, understood with the narrative arc uh, based on the fact that we're uh, uncovered today.
2: I, at this point, assume that he is going to be confirmed. I think it's very likely there will be a party line vote on Friday morning where they will vote for him out of committee and that it will go to the floor. And I think there will not be enough to stop Collins and Murkowski from voting for him. I just don't think they can withstand the pressure that's going to come from the base after Kavanaugh's exceptionally forceful performance and the pressure that will come from Trump on this. If that is the case, and Emily, you can disagree about whether you think that's going to happen. Do I just you, Emily, refuse think that- to
0: give up. I refuse to give up on Collins and Murkowski. There is just like a real betrayal of women that will be unfolding if they do that. I mean, maybe they can come up with some principled way to explain it, but I don't know what it could possibly be. And so I just can't, I can't accept that yet. Although I completely see why you think it's likely.
2: If that happens, do you guys think that that will be an electoral catastrophe for Republicans? Do you think this is a a thing which will cause Democrats to come out and and be just absolutely outraged and turn out even more than they would? Or do you think, as I think it's possible, that this this whole episode is going to really motivate a lot of Republicans to come out and vote who were, maybe weren't even planning to, regardless of whether he gets confirmed. But I think if, even if he gets confirmed, they will come out and vote. Or maybe it won't matter at all.
3: I think if he is confirmed, uh, I think that re- that Democratic women, women in general, who have we've been, I heard from two today, who just broke into tears at lunch because of the way this is connected to their own frustrations in not being heard and listened to in various ways about their own sexual assault or very close to it. Uh, I think that if this gets framed in a confirmation as uh, Republicans not listening to women, then this becomes a motivational, uh, a motivation for the team that loses. If you believe that politics is, if people are animated by grievance, Republicans will have gotten what they wanted, which is the confirmation of of Kavanaugh and and a, Control of the court, uh, that won't be a reason to turn out. But, but he's confirmed that those who didn't want it to happen will be will be angry and want to turn out.
2: Emily, what do you think will happen with the court if Kavanaugh is on it? John Roberts is so concerned with the court's legitimacy, and the the notion that Kavanaugh would be joining that court, having passed through on the narrowest of margins in the most contentious of ways with so much question about his own credibility, his truthfulness, and the possibility he is actually a sex criminal. What will the court be like?
0: I mean, it's so bizarre to me that someone who made that incredibly emotional presentation will then put on a black robe and, you know, march along as a Supreme Court justice. But that's what will happen. I mean, we saw it happen with Clarence Thomas. Once you're in your chambers, people call you Mr. Justice or whatever it is that people call Supreme Court justices. There will be complaints galore from critics of the conservative wing of the court when they make any five to four rulings conservative versus liberals involving issues that relate to women and they will do it anyway because they will have the power to do it that's what will happen i just can't believe that john roberts is going to stay his hand in any significant way because you know now brett kavanaugh has the same kind of you know cloud hanging over him that clarence thomas did
2: John, you're really good on history and on perspective. Do you feel like this Kavanaugh episode, regardless of how it turns out, is going to be poison in the soil of American politics for generations to come? Or do you think it will be forgotten in the way that these things, you know, that, that once seemed, Douglas Ginsburg once seemed important, Abe Fortas once seemed important, and now no one cares? Well,
3: you know, Abe Fortas was a was kind of a special case because he turned out to have like huge ethical issues. I think um, I think this plus Merrick Garland um, creates this plus Merrick Garland plus conservative control of the court creates on the liberal side a kind of long-term programmatic push in the legal community of the kind we've seen on the Republican side. You know, going back to the Warren Court. Um, I mean, if it's if you believe that Republicans have always cared more about the Supreme Court as a voting issue and Democrats, uh, and have turned that into a systematic structural approach for trying to reverse the leftward, remove the court, I think that happens on the, I think that, I think the, the same thing starts to happen more, it's already happening, but, but happens on the left. And I think because it has this gender uh, aspect, um, and this and it's not just gender. It's not just like women's issues. I, the conversations I've had here, including now with my wife who has outed herself in her own experience with, um, with an assault, um, you cannot get any, any hotter and to the core of someone's identity and rage than this. Um, and whether you've personally experienced it or, or come close to it, it's about the strongest feeling you can get, at, get to. Uh, so I think it will have, enduring, have an enduring impact.
2: I hope it has enduring impact in a different way. Uh, well, certainly left liberals being interested in the courts will be fine, but I really hope this keeps people fired up about electoral politics. Like, We can't rely on the Supreme Court to be the one arm of government that does our bidding whether we're liberal or conservative you need a vibrant electoral democracy you need legislatures acting and I really hope that at the state level at the local level the city level and at the at the federal level that people are as engaged about that issue and as and and use those institutions to move forward because I think those are the institutions that were designed to respond to the popular will the courts are very going to be very hard to move it's acting in by voting and by being incredibly active citizens and pushing for for legislation that you want that's going to make the biggest difference the court is has become by be, because the other two institutions of government the other two arms of government have withered so and are so so bad in how they carry out their business it is, the court has become overly powerful and so having democrats in particular recognize electoral politics matter and vote and vote and vote and vote that seems to me I hope, is an outcome of this.
3: Although I, I, I think what you're saying, it makes great sense. It, it, but, but the danger is that it ties to presidential elections. We saw it with President Trump, where people had all kinds of reservations about him, but said, well, he's going to name the next Supreme Court uh, justice, now name two. So that, that is more important than any other possible issue. It turns the presidency into basically a job where you do one thing for certain voters, which I think is, to your, to your point, it's anti-democratic in terms of having a robust system with all of its component parts that responds at different speeds in different ways to the will of the people.
0: I guess I just want to add one more note before we leave behind this particular narrative, which is just that if Kavanaugh is confirmed, then Christine Blasey Ford is going to have turned her life completely upside down, you know, from a lot, from my sense of her today, in a lot of ways, like changed it irrevocably in a way that is not what she wanted at all. Um, and it will be for naught. I mean, it, that is not her fault. It is not her shame. It's the country's. But it, it I, I'm going to find that just really, really it's hard. Not,
2: but it's not for naught, Emily. I mean, she did her duty as a citizen. She did her duty as somebody who is a, who is a victim. And she will be uh, she may not have wanted it, but it was, you know, sometimes responsibility falls on you and you have to act. And she acted in the honorable, right way. And She will be, I think, rightly praised, certainly on the left, for the next generation for having done that. And while that may not be the same satisfaction as having actually stopped Kavanaugh from becoming a justice, if he is not stopped from becoming a justice, it it does not in any way negate or 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 diminish what she did. I mean, she, and nor does it diminish the impact that this may have on people in the same way that Anita Hill failed to stop the Clarence Thomas from being confirmed as a Supreme Court justice, but it changed America. And I think it's possible that Ford will change America in ways that we can't measure yet and not in the way that she hoped to change it, but in some other way that, that it, it's hard for us to know. But it, she moved people. She was credible. She was important and she spoke truth to power. And that's all you can ask someone to do. Absolutely,
0: and I hope you're right. And Anita Hill did say the other day that she does not regret having come forward, and I hope that will be true for Blasey Ford as well. I just feel like she is not a person who wanted this notoriety. She wanted to be a professional. uh, She wanted wanted the life she had. It sounds like she had a good life, and now she's world famous for one terrible thing that happened to her when she was 15, and it's going to be just, really hard. I just think it is, uh, maybe I'm over identifying with her, but um, I just really feel for her.
2: So let's leave it there. We're taping on Thursday evening. It looks like there's going to be a vote in the Judiciary Committee on Friday as, as we tape. That's the plan. We're going to have a live show for you this weekend, and we will talk a lot more about Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court and about what the Senate seems to be doing in the wake of the, the dramatic hearings. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
3: By law. Terms and plus.
1: The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Now let's go to cocktail chatter. John, you're on the train, which means there's a bar which you can go get a beer. That's the the cocktail of the day, I guess. Go get a beer and and unwind. But what are you going to talk to talk to your seatmates about?
3: Um, I wish I could go get a beer. Uh, I, when I interviewed Theresa May, uh, which we're going to talk about in Slate Plus, uh, there was a characterization in a great New Yorker piece about her predicament, where um, you know she's trying to get the UK out of the EU, Brexit, manage Brexit, which she didn't support. But um, and they described her fix that she was in as being in what was called Little Ease, and what Little Ease is is it is a prison cell at the Tower of London arranged and created in such a way that the the inmate in the prison cell could neither stand nor sit nor lie down. First of all, the devious mind that came up with that. But I felt like it was a perfect characterization of what she's going through, which is that she cannot move in any way to get comfortable. And it also at times feels like a lot of our political questions uh, get into that space where it feels like this uncomfortable pinch we're all uh, we are often in where n- we, we lack the movement necessary to ease our situation um anyway so the lead
2: emily what is your chatter
0: i did exactly one slightly fun thing today and that was to read a profile that um taffy broadsar Ackner wrote in the new york times about the actor bradley cooper It's called Bradley Cooper is not really into this profile. And it's just a really wonderful example of what to do when the person you're trying to get to talk about his or her work just refuses to cooperate and you have to go and write the profile anyway. Taffy is generally a master of profile writing, but this one, it it was my, my light moment in this quite dark day.
2: Oh, good. I've been trying to decide whether I'm going to read it, and now I will definitely go read it. Uh, My chatter is another gloomy chatter. So Open the Government and the Project on Government Oversight foiled some materials from the Department of Homeland Security and discovered and released this week the, I guess, not that astonishing fact that despite the fact that Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen denied there was a policy on family separation she actively said there was no such policy they they foiled and received the memo that nielsen had signed which laid out the policy on family separation that policy that was so dreadful and so cruel and so vicious that the government was pursuing in the spring and uh it is depressing that they would uh lie so blatantly that the secretary would lie so blatantly about this we knew this memo existed there was there had been reporting in the washington post that the memo existed but the the actual evidence of it is um depressing it's gloomy it is just further sign of the degradation the world we live in and the willingness of our public officials to manipulate the truth and to deceive us when it is expedient for them so uh Good for them for finding it bad for us for having a government that was willing to carry out that policy and and uh, mislead us about it. There's also a great listener chatter. So listeners, you've been continuing to send us great chatters and actually keep sending them. We have another we have a live show this weekend in Austin and we'll need a listener chatter for that. And I want to for this show call out Blair with an E who's at at Blair cited who sent to me and John in particular a wonderful story from The New York Times about how the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum is in a terrible state because they seem they they're they're in debt because they spent a lot of money to buy a whole lot of Lincoln memorabilia. and one of the things they bought was a Lincoln stovepipe hat which they spent six million dollars. Can you imagine that? six million dollars for a Lincoln hat, one of three supposed Lincoln hats that existed and they have covered up the fact that F- the FBI and other authenticators think this is not a genuine Lincoln hat, that there's a lot of evidence suggesting that the provenance of it is not what it was supposed to be. And there certainly isn't a good chain of custody sending it from Lincoln to to this museum. And so they're sitting on this, this thing, which they consider to be hugely valuable, but actually may just be a fraud. So it was a great story in New York Times. Thanks, at Blair Cited, for pointing it out to us. That is the show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Danielle Hewitt helped on production today as well. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you on Saturday. We have a show in less than 36 hours in Austin, so you'll get an extra bonus GabFest this week.